Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I am your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What up, y'all? Uh, first off, wanted to say I am sorry for uh, not having a podcast up last week. If you are listening to this and you're like, Chase, didn't even notice, then, well, oh, well, now you know. Um, but anyway, yeah, I wanted to apologize for not having a podcast up last week. It was just one of those crazy weeks where I just, quite frankly, didn't, didn't get to it. So, mia culpa, lo siento. Um, but we're going to dive into chapter 4 again. So we're going to finish up First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. Uh, also, another fun fact before we get into our Greek word of the day is that I already recorded this podcast once. I... Uh, was I got a little cocky with my uh, podcasting equipment, wasn't wearing my headphones, and as I was recording this, didn't realize that my microphone was muted the entire time. So I go to like, you know, edit it on my software and whatnot and, you know, start playing it. The intro sounds all good or whatever. And then I get to, <laughs> uh, get to me actually talking. And sure enough, there was no words, nothing. So I was like, well, poop. guess we're going to do this again. Um, so anyway, um, well, hopefully that means this is better because I practiced it once. And if it sucks, well, lo siento again, mia culpa. <laughs> um, so, all right, let's get into it. The Greek word of the day is harpazo. So harpazo uh, means snatching up or uh, to be caught up. And it's, it's, it's mentioned in this passage, part of the reason why I bring it up. Um, it's also where we get the Latin word rapio. Uh, which is where we get the word rapture. So this passage is probably the most theologically debated passage in First Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, really, because this is a passage really where we get this idea of the end of time, the second coming of Christ, and you know this term rapture, rapio, right? It's from the Latin, and so we're going to talk about you know what the Catholic understanding of this is what uh, our non-Catholic brothers and sisters tend to think about the rapture, especially in America today. And yeah, hopefully we get to shed some light on that. Um, so we're going to start, once again, verse 13 through 18. So let's dive in. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, so let's start from the top here. So we start with this phrase, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. So that's our cue that this is either information that's totally new to the Thessalonians or it's information that Paul maybe mentioned, but didn't elaborate on enough. 
So Paul therefore needs to to clarify. Well, one either teach anew or clarify. So he doesn't want them to be uninformed. Uninformed about what? Well, about those who are asleep. So presumably Timothy, when he goes to uh, Athens to you know give uh, Paul the reports on the Thessalonians, uh, presumably Timothy had told Paul that. There was some Thessalonians who were grieving and who were worried or unsure about their brothers and sisters in Christ who have died, right? Fallen asleep, just a euphemism for dead. Um, it's a euphemism that's been around since Paul's day, right? So it's not just something that's like, a, uh, you know, it's something we say today, oh, they passed away. Um, that's a way a euphemism just so we don't have to directly be as blunt and say they died. So why is this? Well, when Paul was going around preaching, about Jesus Christ, there was this sense that Jesus would be coming again soon. Well, why is that? Well, when you turn to Matthew, oh, I think it's 25 or 26. Anyway, Matthew 25 or 26, the, uh, the place where Jesus talks about, um, it's an apocalyptic prophecy where Jesus is saying the stars are going to fall from heaven. Um, you know, the Son of Man is going to come again in glory, all these things. Um, that, and he said it's going to happen within one generation, right? So, before this generation passes away, all these things will, will take place. And so his apostles heard that, believed him, especially after he rose from the dead. Uh, then he taught, they taught Paul those things. So Paul had heard this too. So there was this definite sense within the, the original Christian community that Jesus was going to be to return like ASAP, like ASAP within one generation, that the, the world was going to come to an end and all these things. Um, and so there was this urgency for Paul to evangelize. There was an urgency in the monks early church to live the most holy lives they possibly can. Why? Because Jesus is going to come again soon and they need to be ready, right? They need to prepare to die, basically. You know, you think about it in a spiritual sense when if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, how would you live your life today? Right? You, you would try to live the most loving, patient, amazing life you possibly could. And that's really how we should you know, live every day. I mean, there's so many saints who would study with like a skull on their desk, which is a little creepy. Don't do that. But um, <laughs> especially not now, but the, basically it would remind them of their death, right? Memento more in the Latin. Remember your death. So if every day you live a life so good, so virtuous that you'd be at peace knowing that you would die the next day. I mean, that's really, that's a, that's an awesome spiritual goal. Um, and also being hopeful, right? Which we're going to talk about in a little bit here. So presumably the Thessalonians, believing Paul's message that Jesus was going to come again, were worried because, wow, like Jesus is supposed to come and these people died before he got here. Are they in trouble, right? Is their salvation at stake? And so this is what Paul needs to address now, right? This is what Paul needs to talk about. And, you know, kind of before we get into that, um, there's some, there were some early, uh, not even early church fathers, uh, early church uh, enemies uh, who called this Paul's great lie. Paul's great lie that Jesus was going to come again within one generation. And therefore, because that didn't happen, Christianity is false. Um, but now we know that Jesus in that apocalyptic uh, prophecy was talking about the destruction of the temple because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD within one generation of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And well, how does that make sense if you talking about the end of the world? Well, you remember that the temple, the way it was set up, it was a microcosm of the world. There was pools in it to represent the ocean. There was 
like, you know, man-made streams that ran out of it to represent the rivers. There was uh, leaves etched into the walls and, and made, made of gold, remind of, of the, the garden, the original garden. You know, there was sun and moon and stars on the, on the ceiling to represent the cosmos. So the temple was a microcosm of the, of the world. And remember when Jesus gave that prophecy, he was at the temple, right? He was just outside. So he's talking about the destruction of the temple. Why? Because his body is the new temple. He was going to raise his body in three days. And now we become temples of the Holy Spirit in and through Jesus Christ, right? So keep that in mind too. Um, Paul doesn't know that yet. The temple hasn't been destroyed yet when he writes this. So there was still a sense that Jesus was going to come again. They didn't realize that when the prophecy was going to be fulfilled in that way, they thought he was literally going to come again like ASAP. So going back to scripture, the, the verse here. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So this is another one of those passages, verses that, that, that is debated. A lot of saints, a lot of church fathers took this passage very literally, saying that uh, you shouldn't grieve, like you literally should not grieve when somebody dies, because that's a sign that you don't have hope in the resurrection and the coming of the Lord Jesus and that Jesus can save. Um, and to a certain extent, I think there's some merit to that, right? When you, when you have too much grief, uh, over somebody's passing, that could be kind of more of a spiritual sign that you don't have hope in the resurrection of the dead. Um, but at the same time, there are other saints who didn't take this at just face value. They didn't take it literally. Why? Because in John, when Lazarus died, it says Jesus wept. And if Jesus is our model and he wept at somebody's death, even though he knew he was going to raise him again, therefore we can weep when others die. We can express sorrow when others pass away. But the line is not having an inordinate amount or an unnecessary amount of weeping, right? So like, yes, cry, mourn. That's part of the funeral process, right? That's part of why the church has funerals. Yes, to pray for the one who died, but also for the families, right? So you can pray for them. And so you can grieve appropriately and then rejoice at Jesus's life, death, and resurrection and have hope in their salvation, right? Um, so that's kind of with this verse, I wouldn't read it as like, nope, you're just not allowed to weep, not allowed to mourn. Why? Because Jesus wept, right? Jesus wept at Lazarus' death, even though he literally knew he was about to raise him from the dead. Um, so just keep that in mind. I think that's a more nuanced way to look at that verse rather than just looking, taking it at face value. So verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Well, so what, what's your hope? Well, your hope is because Jesus died and rose again and God will save those who died in and through Jesus Christ. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So interesting fact about what he's about to say. He's saying a word of the Lord. And when we think that, we think, you know, word of the Lord, thanks be to God. We think it's scripture. But what he's about to say is actually nowhere in the gospels. It's nowhere in, in scripture. So this is a sign of potentially oral tradition. So something that Jesus said that was never written down, it was just passed along. Um, or something that, you know, Paul might have heard in his encounter on the road to uh, Damascus, because we don't know if, if that's everything that Jesus said. Odds are something that Jesus said while he was alive and got passed down orally. Um, so what does he say? This is the word of the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, 
will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with the, with the clouds, with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So this is presumably the word of the Lord. And what's interesting about this passage is that um, this is very weird vocabulary for Paul. Um, this is not typical Pauline language. This is not the way Paul usually writes. And so that's why we can assume that he's quoting somebody else here. Because this is, doesn't really sound like Paul when you compare it, compare and contrast it to, to other uh, aspects of Paul's writings. So he is, there's no quotation in ancient Greek, right? So there's no quotes around this. Paul didn't put quotes. Uh, but as presume, we can presume here that this is some kind of quote because it's not really Pauline language. And so what is this reminiscent of? What, what does this kind of remind us of? Well, if you've ever read the Old Testament book of Daniel, that's definitely going to remind you of that. Um, it's very uh, Danielic language. It's very uh, apocalyptic language. Um, an interesting no thing to note is that the trumpet of God. In the Old Testament, anytime trumpets uh, are mentioned, it means that one of two things primarily. Trumpets marked the presence of God or they were used for battle. So in this passage, what's interesting is the Lord himself will descend. So when Paul says the Lord, he usually means Jesus, right? So the Lord himself will descend. So Jesus will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The trumpet of God is only sounded when God is present. So there's some high Christology here because why? When the Son of Man comes, when the Lord Jesus comes, the trumpet of God sounds. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God, fully man, even though Paul doesn't use that exact language. So when Jesus, when the Lord comes, the trumpets of God will blare because God's present. Jesus is present. We see examples of trumpets and, uh, and with God's presence in uh, Exodus 19, Hosea 5. Uh, what's also interesting is in Joel 2, uh, the trumpet is sounded at the time when God comes to set things aright. So in a time in history when God himself will come amongst us and set things right in the world. Because it's no mystery, it's no surprise that the world's a broken, fallen place, especially, I mean, y'all, the crap in our country is getting so wild right now. Um, and don't get me wrong, by no way, shape, or form am I saying that, you know, the world is coming to an end anytime soon. Like, I don't, you know, Jesus is going to come when he's going to come. He's going to come like a thief in the night. Um, but at the same time, if you read the book of Revelation, I mean, the end of the world is not going to be a fun time. Things are going to get a lot worse before Jesus comes again. There's going to be very few Christians left in the world. And there's going to be some serious persecution. We're not even close to there yet. Um, but... We know and we trust that when Jesus does return, when he comes back, he's going to set things right. Every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is also where we have to talk about the rapture. So when uh, in that verse in, in 17, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with, with them in the clouds. So first and foremost, Paul already addressed the Thessalonians' main concern that somehow the dead 
are in a lesser place because they didn't make it to God, to Jesus' return. Uh, Paul's saying, no, by no means are they going to be in a lesser place. And, and actually, they're going to be risen first. They're going to be united with Christ first. So the dead will rise with Christ. And then we, who are still alive, will meet them in the clouds. We'll be caught up with them. So uh, a couple hundred years ago, um, in the past 200 years, this rapture with theology, which is a kind of displacement theology. Basically, the belief is, and I'm painting this with a broad, broad stroke, so just keep that in mind. There are different branches of Protestantism who believe different forms of this, but the general idea of the rapture is that at some time, unbeknownst to us, near the end of the world, Jesus is going to come again, and all of uh, his true believers, all the true Christians, are literally just going to disappear off the face of the earth. They're going to be caught up, raptured, and everyone else is going to be left here to suffer the pains of hell on earth, basically. Um, and uh, the people on earth are going to be like, where'd the Christians go? Like, where'd they go? Like, um, <laughs> um, and don't be wrong, there's, there's different nuance there. And um, there are some brilliant Protestant theologians who, um, who believe this and try to justify it through this passage and other passages. But that is not what the church believes. Why? Well, when you read this passage, and we read uh, compared to other parts of the Bible, other apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation, Daniel, Paul is talking about the end of time. Paul is talking about uh, at, at the end of the earth, at the end of time, when Jesus comes again, it's not going to be where, you know, all of a sudden the Christians are going to be dis- disappear. We're going to go hang out in the clouds in between, you know, heaven and, and earth and watch the earth suffer and rejoice with God in heaven. No, that's not the Catholic teaching. We, we believe that this is when the living and the dead shall meet again in the, uh, and rejoice with Jesus in and through Jesus in the glory of God the Father in that this is the final judgment, right? So at this point, this is when, the, if you read Revelation, the new earth is created, right? So, and why do I say that? So to, what does it mean to be human? To be human, in a very just basic philosophical definition, is, it means you have a body and a soul. You're a body-soul composite. So angels are only form. They only, they only have souls. They're immaterial. Animals have bodies and they have animal souls, but they're not immortal souls. They can't reason. Uh, animal, no, no ape can do algebra or advanced calculus or have a conceptual um, thought, know the form of things, know the essence of things. So humans are somewhere in between, right? We're not angels. We're not animals. We're intellectual, we're rational animals, right? We have body and soul, rational animals. So part of what makes you, you is that you have a body and Different theologians have speculated, you know, when you die, what happens? Do you fall asleep like Christ, like uh, Paul mentions here? And you all of a sudden, at the end of time, that's when you wake up because your soul never leaves your, your body? Uh, maybe, but at the same time, we know bodies uh, decompose and eventually just turn into dust, right? So what's there for your soul to cling on to? Um, so others, other theologians have speculated that when you die, your soul leaves your body and you go up to, you're, rejoiced, you're joined with God in heaven. Uh, or you go to purgatory, or you go to uh, hell. But the only way that works, because what makes you you is the fact that you have a body, as well as a soul, is through an extraordinary grace. So it takes a supernatural, extraordinary grace for your soul to be detached from your body. So, And that's why at the end of time, there must be a new earth. 
There must be a resurrection of the body like we profess in the Nicene Creed. Why? Because that's what makes you human. You can't be human apart from your, your body. And if you, are, if, you, if you are intellectually cognizant before the resurrection of the body, that's only through extreme, supernatural, unmerited, pure grace, right? Because that is a, that, what is a miracle? A miracle is something that, that, that happens not according to nature. So the fact that your soul can exist apart from your body has to be a miracle, has to be just God, God doing it. Uh, why? Because he loves you and he wants to be with you and he wants you to be aware of what's going on even before the resurrection of the body. And so that's why at the end of time, there has to be a resurrection of the body because God wants you to be fully human, fully alive and live with him for all eternity, right? That's why Jesus and Mary, they have their bodies in heaven. Now, is it a body like we have right now? Well, no, it's a resurrected body. It's a supernaturalized body. It's a body that can walk through walls, appear and reappear wherever, wherever it wants. I mean, read the, any of the, the gospels uh, where Jesus appears after his resurrection. It's not normal. He can change his appearance, uh, presumably. That's why Mary didn't recognize him until he chose to be recognized. That's why uh, on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples didn't recognize him until he revealed himself in the Eucharist, right? Um, so they're supernaturalized bodies. They're, they're elevated bodies. They're bodies totally infused with the life of God, with grace. Um, so that's a Catholic understanding. The rapture isn't where all of a sudden Christians are going to disappear and all the sinners are left here on earth. No, this is talking about the end of time. Everyone will be in their proper place. Purgatory will not exist anymore. Purgatory is not a permanent thing. Purgatory is a mercy of God for those who love Jesus, but just aren't quite ready for heaven yet. So remember, heaven is only where the perfect reside because if heaven is union with God who is perfect, you must be perfect to be there. So if hopefully you go through purgatory in this life, like a lot of the saints did, but if not, if you still love God, if you still hope for your salvation in him through the grace of God, purgatory is, it's a mercy. So that way when you die, you know, if you, if you're in purgatory, your end goal is heaven. You're going to be in heaven one day. Purgatory is not permanent. The only two permanent places are heaven and hell. And at some point there's going to be a resurrection of the body. Is that mean we're going to be walking around on this earth? I don't know. Um, there'll be a new supernaturalized earth. That'd be dope. I don't know. Uh, but for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, we profess in the Nicene Creed that you will be, there will be a resurrection of the body. Um, and before then, are there animals in heaven? Nope. There are no animals in heaven. Sorry to bur burst your bubble. Um, there's it, now at the end of time when there's a new heaven, a new earth, could there potentially be heaven or animals and animals there? I mean, potentially if God wanted to, like, you know, uh, we read Isaiah, the prophecies of the lion and the lamb shall lay together, blah, 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 all these things. Um, so potentially, but at this moment, are there animals in heaven? When your rabbit dies, do they go to heaven? Nope. They don't have an immortal soul, right? Sorry to burst your bubble, um, but that is also the Catholic understanding of uh, animals having a non-immortal soul. They have a mortal soul. They don't last for eternity. That being said, don't get me wrong, there potentially could be animals at the end of time, at the in, in, when the new earth is made in the book of Revelation, right? Um, sorry if I just ruined your day. and uh, But that's just the cult hard truth. And truth doesn't care about your feelings. Um, sorry if that's blunt to say, but it's true. Um, so that's the Catholic understanding. Um, it's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. Um, and remember in heaven, there's no tears. There's no sorrow. There's no worries. There's no, there's no even desire. The only, you're constantly filled with the presence of God. And it's an amazing and beautiful and unfathomable reality. And I can't wait to get there one day. I can't wait to see you there one day, whoever's listening to this. Um, so that's uh, chapter four, the end of chapter four.
Um, next week, we'll be finishing off First Thessalonians and diving into Second Thessalonians, kind of giving the framework for that. And we'll see you then. Thanks for joining us, y'all. God bless. Hey, guys, once again, thank you for joining me with Catholics with Bibles. My name is Chase. Uh, feel free to like, subscribe, share, give a review, uh, and stay tuned for next week when we finish off First Thessalonians chapter 5 and the book of First Thessalonians. Fun stuff. See you next time.